Well, guys uh, will do about anything when they realize that they've got a crush on a girl. Uh, girls, I'm just going to tell you, if you haven't already figured this one out. When us guys, we, we realize we got a crush on a girl, we, we get stupid, like really stupid. And, I, and I'm telling you, it's ingrained in who we are from the time we are just little kids. Uh, I, I'm going to take you back uh, to when I was like five or six years old, okay? And uh, I'll share the story with you if, as long as you promise not to tell anybody else. Kind of humiliating. But uh, I, was, I was in swim lessons with about 20 other kids from my church. Uh, we'd all go over to this, this, this lady's house, and she had a big pool, and we'd have our, you know, our, our swim lessons there. And, and here's what it looked like. You've got to get this image, this picture with me, okay? There were tons of kids just running all over the place, and there's kind of some different sections that, that I feel like in my mind kids would, kids would fall, okay? There were, there were the kids who were absolutely terrified of the water. And so, like, their, their parents have brought them, and they're screaming as soon as they get out of the car. They're kicking. They don't want to get close to the water. And their parents, you know, they, they bring them up to the water, and they're, like, you know, pushing back, you know, up to the edge and, like, crying bloody murder. That was my sister. She's three years older than me, and so she was, like, eight or nine, and she was doing that because she terrified at the time. Uh, but then there's those who... Uh, there's those who would just sit along the edge and, and dangle their feet in. They didn't want to get wet. Typically, uh, I'll be honest, these were the girls. Uh, they, would, they would sit there and uh, they'd just be a line of them, okay? And they'd be just giggling and, and whispering to each other and pointing at the guys they thought were cute and dangling their feet in. They didn't want to get wet. They didn't want to get their hair wet because it looked nice. And, uh, and, then, and then there were guys who would be in the shallow end, uh, which was totally cool because we didn't really know how to swim, but in the shallow end, we could touch the bottom. And so we'd be in there, you know, playing around wrestling. You know how guys are. We're playing like war games in the water and having a good time. Kids everywhere. But there was one part of the pool that n nobody was, like nobody touched it. You know what part I'm talking about? It was the deep end. We were all terrified of the deep end. And part of the reason we were so terrified of the deep end is our parents like, in, in, like ingrained this in us as soon as we started swim lessons. They were so adamant about saying, man, stay away from the deep end. Don't go near the deep end. And they never really explained why. So these urban legends kind of began to pop up among us kids of why the deep end was so dangerous. And you know, there'd always be that one kid that was like, I swam to the deep end a couple days ago. <laughs> And this fish came up and tried to swallow. You know, we, we, you know, we thought there were monsters. We thought there were these man-eating fish. We thought that there was this whirlpool that would suck us in. We were just terrified to death of the deep end. Well, I had a huge crush on one of the girls that went to this. And her mom actually happened to be our swim teacher. And, and so we had been going to these swim lessons for about three or four weeks now. And we'd learned the basics of swimming. You know, the big things like uh, fetch the apples, put them in the basket, fetch the apples, put them in the basket. Uh, did y'all, they didn't teach you to do that? Fetch the, okay, I feel weird now. Um, so fetch the apples, put them in the basket. You know, they teach you how to hold your breath underwater. They teach you how to back float, which I'm pretty sure my swim teacher was holding me up the whole time because I've never really been able to do that. And so I thought, okay, <clears throat> this is my chance to impress this girl I've got a huge crush on, and I will swim to the deep end, show her my courage, and, uh, and, and when people are like, oh my gosh, where'd Austin go? They look in the deep end, they'll see me over there and I'll be like acting like, you know, MBD, no big deal, like it's just normal everyday thing for me to swim in the deep end, and they'll be freaking out, and so they'll pull me out of the water, this girl will run, bring me a towel, and, uh, and I'll dry off, and then she and I will run away together, get married, produce babies, and then live happily ever after. Well, so, I, uh, it didn't work out exactly like that um, because I, what I hadn't realized is the only swimming I'd really done was, you know, from like the wall about three yards to my swim teacher. And, uh, you know, plus that swimming was, you know how little kids are, like they, they're kind of doing the whole fetch the apple thing, but they're really just like, 
uh, scared to death, flailing their legs everywhere and sinking, and they don't, you know, anyway. So, so I start to go out to the deep end, and I get, you know, five feet out in the deep end, just far enough where my feet can't touch, and I realize, oh, dang, my feet can't touch, and I'm totally exhausted. This woman is a lot harder than I thought. And so I start, like, yelping, okay? I'm, I'm sinking, and right before I go into water, I'm just like, yeah! You know, like, save me. And so Miss Harriet, our, our teacher, she wasn't even in the water at the time. So she comes running in and she just jumps in the water, catches me, pulls me out. Me and the girl I had a crush on did not uh, run away and get married and, you know, everything else from there. Uh, it was actually terribly humiliating. So why do I tell you that story? I share that story because uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 is where we, where we left off last week. And specifically, we left off in verse 8. And let me tell you what he says in verse eight, okay? I'll recap this. He says, for physical training is of some value. Paul says, for physical training is of some value. In other words, like there's value in learning to swim. I mean, you don't wanna drown if you're ever around a pool, like this summer you're kicking it by the pool. You don't wanna fall in and drown and plus be embarrassed because you can't swim, okay? You also need to develop your muscles they allow you to swim. Like, it's one thing to learn the technique, fetch the apples, put them in the basket. It's another thing to develop the muscles so that you're actually able to do that for any sort of period of time. So what Paul's saying is there is value in physical training. But listen to what he says as he goes on. He says, there's value in physical training, or physical training has some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So here's where he goes. He says, our lives must undergo this massive shift. And this shift is not something that happens here. This shift is something that happens in here, in your heart. I don't know if you remember us last week, we talked uh, about this guy named Nicholas Copernicus, 1500s. He shows up with this crazy theory, it was crazy for them, uh, saying that the earth was not the center of the universe. Instead, the sun, he said, is the center of the universe. Now, this shocked the world because at that point, everybody believed that the earth was at the very center, the most important place of the universe. Everything revolved around them. Geocentric model. But he said, no, heliocentric model. The sun is in the center. And what Paul is saying here is there has to be a massive shift, similar to this shift from believing the earth was the center to the sun. Now I know the sun's not the center of the universe, center of our solar system, but you, you see where I'm going with this. He says, okay, look, we're born, we're born believing that we are at the center of the universe. It's called self-centeredness. And whether we want to admit it or not, we're born with this subconscious and sometimes conscious understanding that everything revolves around us. And so the decisions that we make, the way that we think, the way that we act is all shaped by this. It's called sin, really. And some of you might say, well, I'm not at the center of my universe. Well, that may be true. Maybe you've put something else at the center. Maybe it's money, maybe it's a girl, maybe it's a boy, whatever that is. But ultimately, that still puts you at the center because those things are feeding your pleasures. So he says, we have to go from a shift away from this. In our lives, there has to be a shift from this self-centeredness to what's called God-centeredness, which is another word for what he calls godliness. If I could sum up last week in like one phrase, it would, it would, it would be this. Jesus has to be in the middle. So we start off like this, we're in the middle, everything's revolving around us. We need to move out of the middle and realize that Jesus is the one that's in the middle. This is such a drastic change for us. So drastic that scripture refers to it as being born again. John chapter three, Jesus is talking to this guy named Nick. And uh, he says to Nick, dude, you have to be born again. Well, Nicodemus, he looks at Jesus and he goes, 
how am I supposed to get back into my mom's womb and then come out again? And Jesus goes, dude, that's disgusting. I wasn't even talking about that. He says, I'm talking about being born again, this, this shift from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Uh, and and first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, in other words, Jesus is in the middle, then he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And apart from this shift in our lives, self-centeredness to God-centeredness, we have no future hope. Paul says that, uh, that godliness uh, has value in all things, showing promise for both the present life and the life to come, future hope. So apart from this shift, we have no future hope. And in addition to that, though, apart from this shift, we have no present hope. We are still enslaved to the lie that we are in the middle. So that's where we left off last week. And so we pick up this week in verse 11. Listen to what Paul says. He says, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, he says, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Now, let me give you a little bit of context here, some reminders. Paul is writing this letter to a dude named Timothy. This is week number 10 of us studying this letter, okay? We ought to know that at this point. Now, Paul and Timothy, they've been traveling all over this part of the world. Uh, they going, were going into these cities telling as many people as they could about Jesus, uh, trying to uh, basically see people come to know Christ. And then their goal was in these strategic cities to develop future followers of Jesus who could turn into leaders of the church so that Paul and Timothy could leave, go on to another strategic city, knowing that these leaders that they had trained would be there carrying on the work while they were gone. So, so, so Timothy was really Paul's little younger protege, kind of like a Batman Robin sort of thing, or like a Lone Ranger and Tonto sort of thing, or um, Dr. Evil, Mini-Me, or Pinky in the Brain. I mean, you could just go on forever. But, but he was kind of his, his, his younger uh, little protege. And here's the thing about Timothy. Timothy was really young. He was in his early to mid-30s. Now, now, he's older than most of us in this room, uh, but for them, that was very young because this culture that they were in, they had a high regard for the elder leadership. I mean, just old people in their culture. Like there was a huge amount of respect for old people. Lots of wisdom they saw come from old people. They, they, they didn't see anybody like younger than 30 as worth listening to. So Timothy's Paul's younger protege. He's young. And listen to what Timothy says to him. He says, command and teach these things. These things, up to this point, here's what Paul has said about the Ephesian church, the, everything going on in Ephesus. Really, really three things that stick out. One is he has said that the Ephesians are, are falling into believing these lies, these false gospels, these, these things that have been made up, kind of coded uh, in the name of Jesus. Second thing he said is a lot of those lies have come through some of the leaders of the Ephesian church. And some of those leaders don't need to be leaders anymore because they're leading people astray. And then the third thing that he says is that one of the main reasons that the people were being led astray is because they were spiritually out of shape. And so, so Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. He says to Timothy, dude, uh, you need to gather together the leadership of the Ephesian churches and address um, all of these issues. And among those issues, he's saying, you need to tell them 
Y'all need to stop falling for these lies. And you leaders, some of y'all need to stop leading and stop teaching these lies. And for all you other ones, you're falling into these lies because you are spiritually weak. You're out of shape. He says, you have a spiritual booty do. You know what a booty do is? It's when, it's when your belly sticks out further than your booty do. So you have a spiritual <laughs> booty do. So he says, Paul told Timothy, command and teach these things. Now think about this. He says, command and teach these things. You know, you know what Timothy's response was at this point? He's told to get up in front of these older, supposedly wiser, definitely more respected leaders, tons of other people, and tell them these leaders don't need to lead anymore. Tell them they're believing a lie and they're out of shape. You know what Timothy said in response? He said, I am too scared and I am too young to be doing this. And so Paul says to him, he says, verse 12, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Timothy was scared to death. And, and honestly, in a lot of ways, rightfully so. In fact, you see this fear right at the beginning of this, uh, of this letter. Go back to chapter one, verse three. And, and Paul says, he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Batman and Robin, they've been separated. Robin really wants to be back with Batman. And Batman says, no, Robin, you need to stay here, carry on the work while I'm gone. So Timothy... He stays, and, uh, and he wanted to be with Paul. He didn't want to be where he was because he was too scared and he felt he was too young. 2 Timothy 1.7, later on, another letter, Paul to Timothy, he says, Tim, God has not given you a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. We see Timothy struggling with this fear and this feeling of being too young. Now, now I want to pause here for a second. I want to pause because here's Timothy saying, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too young, I'm too scared. I want to pause because I, I really feel like this message tonight is going to hit right at home for some of you. A lot of you. You, you know that, you know when you like eat something uh, really hot or drink something really hot and you don't take time to cool it off and you swallow it too quick and, and you just feel it like burning your throat as it slowly scoots down your, your, your gullet there, whatever that's called. You know that feeling? Like uh, tonight, uh, some of you are gonna feel this as this goes down. And, and here's why. Because some of you are saying the exact same thing, the exact same thing that Timothy said. Some of you are saying, I am too young and I am too scared. It's really interesting to me too that you're saying this because it seems like few of you truly believe that when God speaks through Paul in Ephesians 2.10 that he's speaking to you. He says in 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Few of you act like you believe that that is meant for you. And in John 14, 12, when Jesus says, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. In fact, he says, he will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So many of you act like that that was not meant for you. I'm too young, I'm too scared. And if it's not saying I'm too young, maybe it's you saying I'm too old or I'm too weak or I'm too sick or I'm too dumb or I'm not smart enough or I don't have enough talent or I got too much sin in my past. Well, if that's you that's saying that, then, then let, me, let me say this. Stop disregarding history and what the Bible says. Because all throughout history and all throughout the Bible, God uses people who are too young, too weak, too dumb, and too inadequate to accomplish amazing things for him. Timothy's one of them, too young. Moses, go way back to the Old Testament. That fool had murdered somebody and he was, he was not fit to get up in front, of, in front of people and talk. I mean, Moses, they, they, a lot of people think that he stuttered, that he had a speech impediment. 
You have Sarah, Abraham's wife, too old, been through menopause, all the hot flashes and that junk, but God used her. Rahab, prostitute, God used her. Gideon, weakest of his family. His family was weakest of their clan. Clan was weakest of their tribe, yet God used him. David, small dude, should have had small man syndrome. Instead, God used him. Committed adultery, done, right? No, God restored him and he used him. You get to the New Testament, Peter, John, those guys were from the wrong social, social class. Not enough education, God used them. Paul, murderer, crazy past, funny looking dude, God used him. God uses inadequate people to accomplish amazing things for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29 says this, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God uses the inadequate people to accomplish amazing things for him. So here's what that means for us. Stop disregarding the Bible. Stop disregarding history. And stop saying you're too young. But on top of that, stop saying you're too afraid. Because you look at history. You look at the Bible. And over and over and over, God used people who were too scared to accomplish amazing things for him. Timothy, he was too scared. Moses, Exodus chapter four, you hear Moses say, he says, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And say, Lord, the Lord didn't appear to you. And then you, you read further, he says, God, I've never been eloquent of speech. I can't get up in front of these people and lead a whole nation of people. He was scared. Joshua takes over for Moses' leadership. Joshua chapter one, three times God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified, don't be discouraged. And then he says, look, if I not commanded you, if I've commanded you to do this, if I've called you to do this, then you're gonna be able to do it. I will enable you to do it. Gideon in Judges six, he says, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My client is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. He was scared. Saul, Old Testament, 1 Samuel 10. Samuel goes to anoint Saul as the king over Israel. And what does Saul do? Man, that fool takes off running. And you know what he does? He goes and hides in one of those little Samsonite suitcases, zips him up from the inside, and tries to hide from the people who are trying to make him king of Israel. I'm not sure I want him to be my next king, but God used him. He was scared and God used him. Peter denies Jesus how many times? Three times. Because he was afraid that he'd get arrested, beaten, and suffer and die like his leader Jesus had. Yet God used all of these men to do incredible things. God's grace goes way beyond just the forgiveness of sin. God's grace is displayed in each of our lives when he uses us, ordinary people, to do extraordinary things. God uses average people to do amazing things. God uses the least likely people to do the most miraculous things. So Paul tells Timothy, I, I don't care if you're scared, I don't care if you're young or you think you're young, but this is what God has created and called you to do. And so he goes on, he says, verse 12, 
He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and impurity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Don't neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but... Now, I've said this before. I'm gonna continue to say it until it gets in your head and it drives you crazy. This word but is one of the smallest words in the English dictionary, one of the smallest words in the Bible, but it has had one of the largest impacts on all of history. Because all over scripture, you see we are sinners, we are sinners, we are doomed to hell, we're doomed to death, we're terrible, but God loves us so much. But even while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. When you see this word but, it just changes everything. It's like a 180 degree shift, like it goes from this way to that way. And so when Paul says, don't let people look down on you because you're young, but, or instead, what he's saying is, don't fix your attention on your fears and your feelings of inadequacy. And the reason he says, don't fix your attention on your fears and your feelings of inadequacy is because when we fix our attention on those things, it paralyzes us. I'll never forget the first time I was ever asked uh, really to get up on a platform and preach in front of anybody. It was at my school in Arkansas, and it was in front of a thousand people, students. It was, it was one of those chapels. So it was, you know, everybody from school is there, at least you know, most everybody's there. And, and so about a thousand students, about a thousand professors. And I will tell you, I've never been so scared in my life. I remember standing backstage, and, and all I could think about, all I was focusing on was, there are all of those people out there. And I was kind of looking, these bright lights were shining down this platform and I'm holding this mic thinking, this is gonna be really loud. <laughs> and I was terrified, paralyzed. I couldn't move. I wanted to poo in my pants and I started sweating in weird places and I was just freaking out, cotton mouth. It was bad, paralyzed. And so Paul says, don't worry about those things. Don't, don't fix your eyes on those things. And he says, instead, here's what you need to fix your eyes on. Here's all you need to worry about. And so verse 12, he says, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul says this. He says, pursue godliness. He says, pursue godliness. Now, last week, this is, we, we touched on this a little bit. And so last week, the question that we asked is, okay, so how do we know if we're pursuing godliness? And we realize that the best way to answer that question is to ask the question, well, what's in the middle? How, are we, how do we know if we're pursuing godness? Ask the question, well, what's in the middle? Do you think and do you act and do you make decisions as if you are the one that the whole universe revolves around or something else is in the middle that the whole universe revolves around? Or do your decisions and actions, do they revolve around Jesus? Does your movement, uh, is your movement determined by his movement? So when we put Jesus in the middle, all these other things begin to be affected by that. Our speech, the way we live our life, the way we love other people, our ability to have faith, our purity. You know, when we struggle with sin, our temptation or the thought that we think is I just need to focus more on this sin and getting it out of my life. But the reality is that's the wrong approach. We need to fix our eyes more on Jesus. He needs to be the one in the middle. And as we fix our eyes more on Jesus, as we pursue that godliness, that God-centeredness, then everything else is gonna begin to fall in place, in line. So Paul first says, pursue godliness. Then he gets to verse 13, and he says, until I come, devote yourself to, to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. He says, base everything that you say and everything you do off of God's word. 
Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, or God's word. And on the law, on God's word, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. I'll never forget one of the coolest Bible studies I've ever been to in my life. It was uh, the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college. And I was working for this uh, sports, Christian sports camp in New Brunswick, Texas called T-Bar-M. And the, the, the leader of that camp, Johnny Polk, uh, he took me and a few other guys out early, early, early one morning. And he took us, uh, there was a river about two miles from campus. And we took us out to this river and we're walking around and we get to this river and, and there's this massive tree right next to the river, almost touching the water. And there's about five of us guys. And he says, I want y'all to link arms and see how many of you it takes to wrap your arms all the way around this tree. And it took all five of us. And the picture that, that Johnny was trying to show us, the picture that Psalm 1 shows us, the picture that Paul is trying to show us right here by saying, devote yourself to God's word is this. That tree was strong, it was huge, and it was immovable. And when we base everything that we do and everything that we say on God's word, we too will be strong, huge, and immovable. So then he goes on in verse 14, he says, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So the third thing that he says is this, Paul says, utilize your God-given gift. Now you look at Paul, and, or I'm sorry, you look at Timothy, and, and you see pretty clearly just from what we've already studied uh, this semester in 1 Timothy, if you looked at 2 Timothy and some of the other letters that Paul writes and includes Timothy in, you'll see that it's pretty clear that Timothy's gift was, was preaching and teaching. Um, Paul says to him, don't neglect that gift. Don't, don't leave it sitting in the garage for a year before you ever come back to it again. Last night, our church softball team, which we are terrible, 0-4, uh, we had a game last night. And uh, I, it was nice out, so I wanted to ride my bike. And I hadn't ridden my bike since I moved here. So I, I went to go get my bike out of this. I had it standing funny in this closet in my house. And uh, I went to go get it, and the tires are flat. So I was like, well, shoot, I can't use that. You know, it was worthless. I, I, now I, needed to, I need to work on my bike to get it back in functioning order. And the same is true about our spiritual gifts that God has given to us. When we don't mess with them for a while, then they kind of deteriorate. Second uh, Timothy chapter one verse six, Paul says, "For this reason, talking to Timothy, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands." He uses this idea of fanning into flame the gift that you've been given. Have any of y'all been watching uh, this season of Survivor? Like three of you. Okay, it's it's a terrible season, so you're not missing anything. I, I watched the first episode. I, I the TV just happened to be on before we were playing basketball Wednesday night, and uh, so I watched the first episode. In the first episode, they split up the. The, the two teams, and it was guys versus girls, and they send them to their camps. Ironically, their camps are right next to each other. And, uh, and so the very first night, <clears throat> the guys uh, were the ones who were able to make fire. And the girls, they tried really, really hard, but they couldn't make fire. Uh, and so they came over to the guys and were like, hey, can, can we borrow some fire? Can you give us some fire? And, uh, and the guys were like, no, we're trying to win this game. Y'all can make your own fire. And, uh, and so the girls later that night when the guys are all asleep, uh, they, they kind of built this stick with a little torch on the end and they snuck over to the guy's camp while they're sleeping and like reached over some of them and stuck it in the fire, got a little flame and they're, you know, tiptoeing back and taking the fire back to their camp, okay? The problem is <laughs> these girls didn't really think about what they were gonna do once they stole the fire. And so all they had was a couple little twigs and some, uh, some leaves and a little bit of grass. And they hadn't thought about the fact so, so, I mean, what they did, they got back, they stick the torch in their, in their little 
pile of grass. And, uh, and then they laid down to go to sleep. Well, they didn't think about the fact, two things. One, they were going to have to fan that into flame and continue to feed, feed that fire so that it continued to burn and didn't burn out. And the same thing is true when we neglect our God-given gifts. Whether it's the ability to preach and teach or the ability to serve or the ability to be hospitable and to encourage or to counsel or discernment or, I mean, whatever your spiritual God-given gift is, if we don't use it, it weakens, it deteriorates. So finally, verse 15, Paul says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Now I wanna hang here for a second. He says, give yourself wholly to them. A literal word for word from the original print translation would be, instead of give yourself wholly to them, it says, in them be. Anybody here have the ESV translation? What does yours say? It says, it says immerse yourself. Right? It says, immerse yourself in them. So, so Paul says, instead of sitting there and saying to yourself, I'm too young and I'm too scared and focusing on your fears and focusing on your feelings of inadequacy, he says, instead of focusing on that, focus on these things. One, pursue godliness. Two, he says, base everything you do and say off of God's word. And three, he says, utilize your God-given gift. And then four, he says, jump in. Immerse yourself. Now, with it being that time of year where people are coming back out and hanging out the pools and it's starting to warm up, I, I want this illustration I'm about to share. I hope it sticks with you. Go back to that swim lesson that I, that I was telling you about earlier. There were a few different kinds of people there. You remember? There were the ones who, they'd, they'd, they'd see the water and they'd flip out, start screaming, crying, pushing, because they didn't want to get in the water. They were scared to death of the water. There were others who, they didn't want to get in because they didn't want to get their hair wet. They didn't want to get fully wet, so they just kind of dangle their feet in the water, sit there on the edge and talk and gossip and giggle. And then there were others who would get into the shallow end because even though they couldn't swim good, they could at least touch the bottom, though they would never go close to the deep end. And then very few, very few, some of us brave ones, would go to the deep end. When it comes to responding to God's call on your life, there are about four types, I'm sorry, three types of people in this room. The, the first is this, there, there are people looking at the water and then, and then turning and looking at yourself and saying, I, I am too scared and I'm too young and I, I can't swim very good. And so you, you see the water and you cautiously slash quickly back away. You don't want to get close to the water because you are terrified by the water. You know what it looks like, but you don't know how it feels because you've never gotten in. If that's you, if that describes your relationship and your response to God's calling, then, then, then hear this. God is calling you to surrender your life to him. And at this point, you're not. Now, there's a couple other types of people. The other type of person is there are people who are looking at the water, looking then at themselves and saying, I'm, I'm too scared, I'm too young, I can't swim very good. And so you don't want to get in the water, but you're not as terrified of the water. You're willing to stick your feet in the water, but you, but you don't want to get wet because you don't want to mess up your hair. Uh, you, 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 you don't want to lose uh, the perks of, of being dry. You, you, you want to be close enough so that you can hang with the people that are swimming, but, uh, but you... You don't, you don't want to get in. I mean, you're scared maybe the water's going to be too hot or maybe, maybe too cold or 
I don't know, maybe it's just a texture thing for you, but you're scared of the water. You wanna be close enough so you can be associated. You appreciate the comfort of being dry and the perks that come with that because when you're wet, you can't go inside, right? And you also don't wanna lose the perks that you'll lose when you get in the water because you can't pee in the pool and you can't take food in the pool. There's a lot of things you can't do in the pool. So you don't wanna lose those perks either. You're unwilling to give those things up. And if that's you, your relationship with God looks a, a lot like that. You get as close as you can without getting wet. You wanna be as close as you possibly can so that you can be associated with, with everybody else that's swimming, but without losing the perks of being dry and without losing the perks that you lose when you, when you get into the water. And then there's another type of person, and, and this is the one who, these are the ones who are in the pool. You're, you're in the shallow end, but as you look down towards the deep end, and then you look at yourself, you think, I'm too scared and I'm too young and I can't swim very well. So in, in, instead of moving towards the deep end, you won't leave the shallow end. You'll only go as far as your feet can reach. And, and the, the great thing about that is you're in the water. In fact, you'll even go all the way under and kind of get your hair wet and then you'll pop back up and you're still standing there shallow. But now you look like you've been completely doused in water and you're wet. And so you can tell people that you've been, been swimming. But the reality is if your feet are touching the bottom, you're not swimming. And, and you, you like the fact that when you get out and you're soaking wet, people look at you and say, oh, you must have gone swimming today. People acknowledging you that you've been swimming even though you haven't. You're, you're essentially believing a, a lie. But you're cool with that because you love the safety of the shallow end too much and are unwilling to give that up. The people in the room like that, you're, you're a lot like the people who are dangling their feet. Your relationship with God and your response to his calling on your life is a lot like the people who are dangling their feet because you're scared of the water. You're, you know, you're not scared of getting wet, but you're still really scared of the water but you're, you're unwilling to go from the shallow end to the deep end. You're unwilling to take that full step of faith of just jumping in and seeing what happens. Now, if any of you in this room fall into that category or one of those three categories, you need to hear me say this. You are not where God has called you to be. Because God has clearly called us to be people who run and jump in. And here's the thing. When we run and we jump in, not focusing on our fears and our feelings of inadequacy, when we run and we just jump in, the moment we start to sink, and you will start to sink, Jesus is there to catch us. And so he said, you need to not sit on the side and dangle your feet you don't need to just chill in the shallow end where your feet can touch because that's not swimming either. You need to jump in. And here's why he says that. Look at verse 16. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, if you do jump in, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now let me clarify what this is saying here because you might read that and think, okay, so I need to do something in order to save myself. And that is not what this is saying. Because the gospel is very clear that you and I, we cannot save ourselves. And that's the thing. You jump in, you're going to sink. Jesus will catch you when you jump in. But, but let me use this illustration. I think, I think it'll help bring this to light. Uh, my college pastor, his name is Kevin Inman. Crazy fool. 
And uh, every year, he would take our, our ministry student leadership team uh, at the beginning of the fall to um, this, this lodge that was close to our campus, and we'd stay there overnight, and we'd do some training, and we'd hang out at the lake, Lake DeGray, beautiful lake in Arkansas. And one of the things he would do is he would rent a, a, a pontoon boat. You know one of those, you know what a pontoon boat is, right? Kind of like one of those party boats. And uh, we'd go hang out on the pontoon boat for a couple hours and just kind of kick it, you know, swim, things like that. And he'd always try and do something dumb and crazy to impress us because, I don't know, he just thought that was cool. And so, like, my year, he comes speeding up in this pontoon boat. He wanted to get really close to the shore, but he actually got too close and ran it ashore. Um, but then the year after me, which I didn't hear about this for a couple years after it happened, but the year after me, so I wasn't there for this, he gets this pontoon boat, all right? And this pontoon boat has a capacity of 12 to 15 people. Well, they had about 30 student leaders. So he gets this pontoon boat. He puts all their leaders on this pontoon boat. And, and in addition to the student leaders, he also had his three kids. Now, one of his kids at the time was like way too young to really know how to swim. The other two were so young that they hardly knew how to swim. So he takes them out into the middle of this lake with the pontoon boat. And as they're driving, somebody started to notice that the, that the boat was starting to, its front end was starting to go like down into the water. And there was water starting to spill over the side of this boat as it began to sink. And so Kevin, if you knew Kevin, this would be super hilarious. He just starts freaking out and screaming like, we're sinking, we're sinking, we're sinking, jump, jump, jump. And everybody's fully clothed because like nobody had taken off their, you know, outer clothes yet. And they're got their cell phones in their pockets, their wallets and keys in their pockets. So everybody's like frozen, paralyzed, not wanting to get in yet. Nobody's got life jackets on. And so he's yelling jump. And this one girl, the intern at the time, who's a student when I was there, her name's Stacy. She hears Kevin jumping as, as her into the boat is starting to go up into the air. And she's like, she looks around, she just goes, and just like jumps in, splashes. And the thing, what happened? Here's what happened. When she jumped in, all of a sudden, all the other students, they start to run and just jump in the water after her. And then after they started jumping in the water after her, the boat, they said they could see it just kind of go, whoop, 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 and just sit back on the top of the water. And you know what happened? You know, I know that's a weird illustration, but you, but you know what happened is... Stacy, she, she ran and she just jumped. Forget about the phone, the keys, the wallet. She just ran and she jumped. And when she ran and jumped, all the other leaders jumped following her. And the result was, not only did they save the boat, but they saved the little kids that were on the boat as well. And that's almost the exact same thing that Paul's saying here. Here's what he's saying. How can we, like when he says... You need to jump so that you save yourself. He's essentially asking this question. How can you say that you believe if you haven't jumped? How can you say that you really believe in Jesus and him catching you if you haven't jumped? Real faith is jumping even when you don't know how to swim good or swim at all. Trusting that Jesus will catch you. The second thing he's saying is this, how will others be able to believe unless we jump in? Romans chapter 10 says this, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in, in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? How can they preach unless they go? How can we share the gospel unless we jump in? When we jump in, not only do we save ourselves, but others will be saved too. Tonight, I, I, I wanna leave us some time now to, to really just respond to this. 
Um, and, and really two things have been on my heart. One is this. I know there, there are people in this room who are saying, I'm too young, I'm too scared, or I'm too something else. I'm too inadequate in some way, and I'm too scared. And, and so tonight, as the guys come back up here, is, is about two things. One, you laying your fear at the cross. And two, you're, you're laying your feelings of inadequacy at the cross. Because here's the thing, as, as some of you are saying, I'm too young or I'm too scared or I'm too whatever and, and I'm too scared, it has paralyzed many of you. And some of you, it's paralyzed you to the point where you're not even jumping in. Some of you not yet even gotten close to the water. Others of you, you're sitting on the edge dangling your feet. And you know what that looks like? Like you, you really like what you have over here. You kind of want that over there. And so instead of crossing completely over, you just kind of stand over here fully on your side and then reach out and just kind of every once in a while stick your foot in to see how it feels, you know? But you never just get in. Some of you are doing that. Others of you, you're in the shallow end. You look wet. You look like you've been swimming, but you haven't swam yet because your feet have been touching the bottom the whole stinking time. And it all comes back to you saying, I'm too young, I'm too scared, I'm too inadequate, I'm too scared. And so my prayer tonight is, is as we have this time of just responding, and, and I'll just say, if, if you want to come up here and you want to kneel, pray, if you want to stand, shout, sing, whatever, if you want to stay where you are, go to the back, whatever, I don't care. Um, just a time for us to respond and think about what is it that God's calling us to do and are we responding to that? Or are we one of those three people that hasn't yet in faith jumped in? If you remember anything from tonight, it is jump in.